Uh, it's good to see you again, and this is the last of the four discussions on some of these very prominent atheists that have made a real impact lately in the last, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years about uh, not just uh, that atheism is a reasonable, defensible position, but that uh, one of the things that they've introduced is that there shouldn't be religion in society. Uh, it's a threat. It undermines civilization, religious people. In fact, we're going to see one in a little later, or evil people, uh, Christians in particular, and that there should be laws prohibiting Christianity. Now, uh, there's always been people you know, who have argued that atheism is a reasonable position. You know, that's, that, that list is long, and a lot of them are very, very influential, and, and quite honestly, some of them, I, I think, you know, make good points on occasion. Like one of my favorite authors, maybe you read this person, is Albert Camus, famous French writer, Algerian, wrote some tremendous stuff, very, very insightful. He has a great sort of sensitivity about the human experience, and he lived through, well, actually both wars, World War One and World War II, suffered greatly, and he was wondering how you can believe in God in, in a lot of such carnage and such destruction in society, and, and that's a legitimate question. I think each of us struggles with that one. How can we believe uh, well, the old classic formula, all-powerful, all-loving God, and there be such wickedness and cruelty in the world? There, there's a seriousness to that, I think, that every believer should, should take and, and see for what it is. But this is different. What we're seeing now with these people is, is not just that you are irrational but because you are religious, but that you are a threat because you are religious, and that's different. And we started with Christopher and Hitchison a number of weeks ago, and today I'm going to look at uh, two people. They're not scientists. Uh, one is, a, well, I guess he is a scientist. He's not a practicing scientist. He's a, he has a Ph.D. from UCLA in neuroscience. And then the second one we'll look at is a philosopher. But a couple of more things before we start to look at this first person here. Uh, again, my, my goal in this is not to give you a set of propositions of which you can defeat anybody. That's not the goal of education, one thing, is to give you a way to win all arguments. That's sophistry. A way, you know, the goal of education is to inform you to be able to think critically, to be able to think in an informed way, to be open to revision, to promote the great virtues of faith, hope, and love, and compassion, and wonder, and all. It's not to equip you to you know, win every case that comes your way. That's not the purpose of education. So I'm not giving you this so you can go out of here and say, well, I've, I've got an easy answer to refute these issues. That's not it. Part of what I'm trying to do is just inform you of what's going on in culture right now. And I do think there is a shift. Also, I've said this, and I'll say it again, and that is I don't mean in any way to assume that we can become arrogant or haughty because of our position, because I think these people are so wrong, so illogical, that doesn't entitle me to be in any way judgmental towards them. As a Christian, we bear the commandment not to judge anyone. That is a command that is given to us. It's not an option. It is a command. If you think about it, I could go on a long time about this, but think of all the commands that are uniformly given throughout Scripture. From the Torah to the prophets to the Gospels and the Apostles. There are a number of them. But one of them is this, thou shalt not judge. And so even though I think these people are very wrong, dreadfully wrong, but that doesn't entitle me in any way to condemn them, to think that I'm better than them. And so that's a fine line that we're having to walk here. You know, how to be astute intellectually, but non-judgmentally, non-judgmental spiritually. 
All right, with that said, let's look here at two representatives of this new form of atheism and possibly what we can say uh, in reply to them. The first one here is Sam Harris. Um, he, um, I think he got a, a PhD, I mean a bachelor's of philosophy from Stanford and then got a neuroscience PhD from UCLA. He's not a practicing scientist. He has his own foundation in which he is promoting this cause that is the end of faith, that is how to get rid of religion in society. In fact, the subtitle, as you can see, Well, here we go, sorry. The subtitle of the book is Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason, Sam Harris. This book came out in uh, 2004. It made a big splash. I'll read you just a couple of things here. Most of you may know Alan Dershowitz, the famous Harvard professor of law. He says, Harris's tour de France demonstrates how faith, blind, deaf, dumb, and unreasoned threatens our very existence. Peter Singer, who teaches at Princeton, probably, unfortunately in my opinion, the most quoted bioethicist in our society. He says, at last we have a book that focuses on the common thread that links Islamic terrorism with the irrationality of all religious faith. And so it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 33 weeks, widely read. I've had other people tell me that this was actually a textbook in their course on philosophy or religion. And so it, this is not on the fringe of our society. This is at the core of what's being taught about religion. And what uh, Harris is arguing, essentially, is that it's a threat. And we've got to get rid of it. All right. How does he come up with that? Now, I know this has been a dreary study. <laughs> Frankly, I get a little old, at, you know, taking so many body blows, uh, like a boxer up against the ropes, you know, trying to pay attention to what these people say, trying to hear them for what they are trying to do, give them you know, a fair benefit of the doubt, and so on. Uh, it does get a little dreary after a while. And, and when I first read this book, I, I really, really struggled keeping with it. It took all my patience to wade through this book because I think, though he might have been a philosophy undergrad, he's a pitiful logician. Uh, it, the, the book is filled with just numerous, numerous logical errors. Uh, that is, he assume a conclusion from bad premises or bad inferences. And uh, one of the worst things that he'll do is that he'll find an act of violence done in the name of religion, then assume that that particular act of violence pertains to all religious people. In logic, we call that the fallacy of composition. Just because it may be true of a part doesn't mean it's true of the whole. But he thinks because there are religious people advocating violence, then religion advocates violence. And that's a bad argument. But here's what he says. I'm going to condense the book down. He makes some very, very controversial claims in it um, uh, into six steps here, his main argument. He says here, the text of the monotheistic religions condone violence. Obviously, you can look at the book of Judges. When the last time you read the book of Judges? It's a brutal book, by the way. Joshua is, is rough and ready. Uh, a lot of violence and God commissioning you know, the armies of the Israelites to go and kill all the Amalekites, the Amidites, and the Amalekites, and so on. It's, it's, it's a tough book to read. It really is, and, and that is true. And the same thing with the Quran. Many, many texts of violence are found in the Quran as well. Well, uh, he makes that, and that's, that's to me is an uncontroversial point. 
that if we just look at our scriptures, there are scriptures in the Bible that that use violence, that God will use violence to promote certain ends. No doubt about that. And that's always a very difficult thing for us to wrestle with. I'll come back to that in just a minute. And then he goes to this next point that religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, he's got a whole chapter here on Islam, uh, have used these texts to justify violence themselves. And of course he brings out what a lot of these authors have. Remember when we looked at Christopher, Christopher Hutchinson, he talked a lot about the Crusades, a lot about the Inquisition, a lot about the Holocaust. Well, this is what Harris does as well, that Christians used Scripture to justify the Inquisition. And they did. If you read much of what happened in Spain there in the 16th century, the Grand Inquisitor did use a lot of Scripture. Uh, script, uh, uh, various uh, leaders would use Scripture to justify the Crusades, just as many Muslims used the Quran to capture the Holy Lands. A lot of Christians would use the Old Testament to uh, capture, go back and recapture the Holy Lands. That's true. Religions have justified violence by using these Scriptures. That, to me, is an uncontroversial claim to make. That's just a fact that Christians, unfortunately, have done that. Let me add this, though, and I, I think each of you, in your own way, has kind of come to this realization. Um, you know, we have to interpret the Bible in light of what we've learned over 20 centuries. We just can't jump back 2,000 years or 3,000 years and get right in the Bible and think we can understand the right way to interpret it. The Bible is 66 books, as you well know, and to lift one passage... You know, for instance, like 1 Samuel 15 is really a difficult chapter in itself to read. This is where, you know, God has commissioned Saul to go kill all the Amalekites. And he brings the king back to, you know, triumph his victory over the Amalekites. And God, through Samuel, curses Saul. That's a rough chapter. But, you know, that's not the only chapter in the Bible, is it? There are other chapters, other books. There are 66 books. And I cannot really say I speak with the biblical authority by just claiming I've read one chapter. Or, frankly, just one book. I've got to read all of it and see how to interpret it all together. And by studying how the church has done this for the 2,000 years, we've learned some lessons. We really have. And they've been hard lessons for us to learn. And one of the lessons that I think we've learned, now of course, I do think there are peripheral groups within Christendom that haven't learned this lesson. One of the lessons that we've learned is that it is contrary to the spirit of Christianity to use those Old Testament passages to justify violence. We've learned that lesson. It took us a long time to do it. But I think we have learned that lesson. You know, for instance, if I got up and I just quoted from the book of Joshua that we ought to go over to Syria and start to bomb all those people over there, you'd think what about me? I hope you'd think I was an idiot. Uh, <laughs> I hope you would think that I was misusing Scripture to say in light of that God commissioned those, those judges to go and, and, and to wipe out the Philistines. Therefore, America, being a Christian nation, ought to go over there and wipe out all those, those people in Syria. That, that, that's a horrible misuse of the Scripture. And I think you would know it. And the reason why you would know it, hopefully, is that you've paid attention to what the church has done, learned over these 2,000 years. And that is a misuse of Scripture. Just because you use the Bible doesn't mean you're using it correctly. We have to use the Bible in the way in which it actually promotes the Lord of the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ. And we know Christ says, you've got to turn your other cheek. We don't kill our enemies. What do we do? We love our enemies. So how can the church act in a way in which we love our enemies? That's the real question. Well, Harris uh, was 
not raised in a religious home at all, even though his mother was ethnically Jewish. And I, it seemed like I read his father at one time was a Quaker, but he himself knows nothing personally about religion. And so, in my opinion, he seems utterly oblivious to the long lessons that the church has learned. He has picked out these isolated cases in which Christians have justified you know, horrible carnage, like the Inquisition, in the name of Scripture, and says, well, this is at the heart of Christianity. I, I don't think it takes much to say it's not. Well, this then now will lead him uh, to one of his more controversial claims. Number three, the moderates of these religions actually contribute to this violence by accepting their scriptures. As he says, we must adopt what, what he calls conversational intolerance. Uh, he has no sympathy for moderates in religion. Of course, as I've already said, there are extremists in all these religions that will use their sacred texts to justify all kinds of you know, just murderous acts and un, un, uh, irrational violence and so on. And that's true. And I join him in, in condemning those acts. But I do it because I think they're contrary to really the purpose of Scripture. Well, he also says the moderates, like I guess maybe I would be a moderate, maybe you'd be a moderate. He said we're just as guilty as the extremist. For every Muslim who, you know, blows up somebody... For everyone who in the name of Christ goes out and does something horrible, wicked, cruel, whatever, that I'm just as guilty as they are because I accept the scriptures. I think we ought to keep the scriptures. Well, by keeping the scriptures, what we do is that we give fodder to the extremism, the murderous acts of these extremists, these fundamentalists. So I'm just as guilty as they are. And what he argues, or what he recommends, is that for people who see religion as such a threat, that they adopt this conversational intolerance. That is, let's say you start to defend Christianity, I've got to silence you. Just like if you try to defend racism, you wanted to stand up here and make a case that we ought to discriminate against African Americans. You know, we, we, would, we would say, you know, you don't have an argument. You know, be quiet. Well, that's what he says about religion. You have no place in society to even mention religion because if you do, you're sanctioning the text that can be used for acts of violence conversational intolerance. So this is, a, he's, at, he's, he's recommending a real sort of bellicose position towards religious people. Now, it, it even gets a little more acerbic. Number four, uh, the monotheistic religions encourage and incite violence and terror, and this aspect threatens modern civilization. I think this is probably at the core of what he, Bennett, Dawkins, Hitchison are arguing is that modernity has moved in a way that we've developed these freedoms, we've developed you know, science and religion, Christianity in particular, is against the freedoms of modernity, against science, that as long as we have religious people, we'll be undermining our freedoms, we'll be promoting ignorance, you know, like what we saw last week with Dawkins, I mean with Dennett, he, he is saying that you don't have a right to teach your children that God is a creator. You don't have that right. Because it's contrary to science. Yes. Does he pick on monotheism uh, specifically, or does he deal with polytheistic religions? Well, he's going to say something about in number six. He'll say something about the Eastern religions. Uh, but no, this is monotheism. Monotheism is a is a disease. Because if you have one God who utters commands and cannot be challenged, cannot be challenged, this one God. Because whatever this God commands is always right. Even if this God com contradicts himself, he would always be right because he cannot be challenged. And he has, he has called you to go kill your enemy. 
Therefore, there's no way that you're open to any kind of revision or criticism. That's why monotheism is a threat, because it cannot be challenged. Now, I mean, I will say, I know people who are just intransigent in their religious opinions. They're just so dogmatic. They in no way will open themselves up to any kind of questioning. And I agree that that kind of dogmatism uh, is, is a liability to our faith. Uh, you know, to me, one of the things, I'm going to chase a slow rabbit for just a second. One of the things I think we have to learn is, again, how to be focused, committed, um, devoted to the set of truths that constitute Christianity. You know, for instance, many of you are in the 9 o'clock service. Uh, we, we share the Nicene Creed together. That's been around since 325. That's a faith that that's a claim of our faith that we share, and I believe in that. I really do. I, I believe in the Nicene Creed, and I think, I think I can make it. I can I can defend it. I think there are good reasons for saying those things, and I'm committed to that. However, though, I need to keep myself open to question, to challenge. That well, let's look at this maybe a different way. Let's try to understand what it says about you know very God, very God, maybe from a different angle, different perspective. Open ourselves up to revision but keeping the, the resolute commitment to the core of the faith. That's always, I think, one of the balance acts of Christian life. Exclusive commitment, open to revision, open to being challenged. How to do that? A lot of people go one way or the other. Oh, all beliefs are open. We have to be tolerant of everything because you know we're fallible and we're, we're, we can't be dogmatic. Then the other side is, is just as wrong. We're intransigent, we're condemnatory, we're arrogant, you know, judgmental towards others because they don't say it, believe it just as the way we do. I think both of those are wrong. Now here is his most controversial point, number five. Therefore we must remove the monotheistic religions. Now I put this in quote because you wouldn't believe me if I just paraphrased it. See what it says? Now when I first read it I thought, oh surely not, he must be in jest. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may be ethical to kill people for believing them. Now, at first I thought he was meaning, okay, let's say, what's your name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth here has a bomb, and she's going to throw it in here and kill us all. And Gil has a choice, to let her do it or to kill her and stop her doing it. I would vote for Gil to kill her, all right? I would do that, <laughs> wouldn't you? And I think that's a defensible point. I think it is. And I thought, okay, that's what he's referring to. Nope, that's not what he's referring to. Because he makes no distinction between a terrorist like Elizabeth here and a religious believer who accepts the Old Testament. Because if you accept the Old Testament, you give her reasons to go out and kill people in the name of God. So what he means is not just Elizabeth the terrorist, but Scott the religious believer as well. If, if he radically, intransigently insists on believing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's a dangerous idea that he may, these are his words, he may need to be put to death for, for believing that. Because look at what harm can come from his belief. Just as we're going to stop Elizabeth from throwing that bomb by killing her, we should stop Scott from being religious because from that will come a bomb one of these days. That, that's his argument. I, I just find that incomprehensible, by the way. Uh, I, you know, And this was published... Buy a well-known book. I mean, a publisher. 
uh, Norton Company. I mean, this is one of the biggest publishers in the world, Norton. I mean, I, if, if I could ever get a book published by then, I'd, I'd, I'd retire thinking I've, I've accomplished my, my academic goals. And they published something like this. What's the logic of his argument? How many religious people are there in America? Well, let's just pick Alabama. How many religious people are there in Alabama? We've got a little over three million people. Let's just conservatively say half of us are religious. All right, we're going to kill a million and a half people. That sounds like ideological genocide to me. Yeah, but it's ironic because he's advocating we kill the people who want to kill us but not believing like we do. Therefore, if you don't believe like I do. That's right. But see, he... Like, uh, if you remember from um, uh, Dennett last week, he's one of the brights. Were you here last week? Okay, we talked about this article that was in the New York Times in 2004 that Daniel Dennett called the brights. The brights are those people who are enlightened, and they've been informed by science. That's why he is infallible. He has science behind his beliefs. Interestingly enough, I mean, you had to, I had to stay on my toes, and you will too if you read this book, with what he says about the Eastern religions. You're reading along, all these religions are horrible, let's get rid of them. They won't change, maybe even liquidate them. And then all of a sudden he has a chapter or two on these Eastern religions. Uh, he's very interested in Buddhism in particular. He believes there's a spirituality that's just in the consciousness, not in a god, anything transcendent, but just in your consciousness. That's true spirituality. Buddhism, which doesn't really believe in a transcendent reality and doesn't even believe in the self, just believes in consciousness, uh, is scientifically verifiable. And it promotes true self-understanding and is nonviolent. Buddhism is nonviolent. And so he thinks that the new evolution of our society will be adopting, will be formed and shaped by the great mystical texts out of the religions of the East, in particular Hinduism and Buddhism. He's got whole chapters on mystical texts, and he says you won't find anything like this in the Bible. Um, well, I, I think that just shows his ignorance of the Bible, for one thing. There are great mystical texts in the scriptures. Uh, in fact, in my opinion, I think we read one in the worship service today, in John 14, where, where Christ says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's obviously a sense of spiritual union. Uh, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 139. I think it's one of the great mystical texts of all literature. Oh Lord, where has the, I mean, where can I go to flee thy presence? God's spiritual presence is everywhere. Again, I, th I think this just shows his ignorance of what he's criticizing. Uh, but also I think he has misrepresented uh, Buddhism. Uh, I've been a little bit in a Buddhist culture, part of Korea. Spent a little bit of time in, in Seoul. Uh, uh, but I've studied Buddhism, and a lot of Buddhism is very wrapped up with specific deities, the more populous form of Buddhism. Most Buddhism that we know of, and probably the most Buddhism in California that's very, is Zen Buddhism. That is very sort of um, anti-transcendent, anti-person, anti-self, a lot of meditation of losing yourself, uh, Zen Buddhism. And also it shows a real ignorance of the history of Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is, a, is in some ways... Just like all religions, there's aspects of it that's very violent. Uh, the Japanese were Buddhist and Shinto. And I remember I've read uh, that many of the, the Buddhist monks in Japan during the war melted down their sacred bells and swords so that they could be made into bullets and that they had commissioning service for 
for their own warriors and so on. All that was wrapped up with the Buddhism of Japan. And so to say that Buddhism is nonviolence is selective reading. Again, a horrible, horrible logical mistake on his part. I mean, of course, there is a strong passivism in Buddhism. As I think there's a strong passivism in Christianity. I don't think you can eliminate that from our history. He, he ignores one and also ignores the other in Buddhism. Like I said, it's a frustrating book. It really is. But it's having an influence. Okay, I, I'll, I'll say something in a minute about how can we respond to something like this. Now let me talk about something just as off, also eye-opening uh, from another atheist. His name is David Lewis. Uh, he died in 2001 taught philosophy for 30 years or so at Princeton. Incredibly influential. I, I, I sort of have prided myself that I can read difficult stuff. And you got to, you know, to, to teach philosophy. Uh, but he is very, very difficult. He is incredibly rigorous, very, very logical with what he writes, and very innovative. He really advanced some pretty interesting ideas. Of course, I don't share everything that he believes. He's a, he's a thoroughgoing materialist, and I'm not. Uh, but, I mean, he has interesting notions, and you, you can go to probably any major research university that gives a Ph.D. in philosophy, and they'll teach seminars just on his work. People write dissertations on his work. He is a major, major league hitter in, in academia. Well, uh, a number of years ago, and I didn't know anything about this article, uh, in uh, 2007, I picked up Harper's Magazine, and Harper Magazine is a good magazine. They have a lot of good stuff. It's a, I like reading Harper's. And um, uh, there was this article in here titled, God is Evil, and I thought, well, what does that mean? Uh, and it was written uh, by David Lewis, that he wrote this little article, it got published, he, he, he wrote it and then died, and then a colleague of his send it to Harper's, and Harper's published this article. It has been expanded a little bit by his colleague named Philip Kitster, and it's now published in a book called Philosophers Without God. So this is, this is out there in the academy. It is read in academic circles. It is read in classrooms and taught. But its first exposure was in this incredibly popular, widely read, influential magazine, Harper's. All right. So, whoever made this decision by Harper's felt like this was sort of a, a, a viable contribution to the public debate about religion. That they made sort of an editorial sanction of this. And so I thought, well, well I better take, take this seriously. I better see what, he, what he's trying to say. All right, here's what he says. And, and I, you, can, you can sit here and read it. It's only about three or four pages long. If you don't believe me. I'll leave it here, and you can read this. All right, if you don't believe what I'm, what I'm about to tell you is the main argument that he has, right, you can read it on your own. Uh, Christianity, he says this is a neglected argument, by the way. Nobody has ever really used this argument. He's come up with a novel argument against religion, Christianity in particular. Christianity teaches that God punishes unrepentant sinners with an eternal punishment. I'm going to go through this first and then come back and make some editorial comments. Secondly, eternal punishment is grossly disproportionate to the sinner's temporal offense. Let's say Elizabeth commits 60 years of sin in her life, but she's punished for eternity for those 60 years of sin. That's disproportionate. That's definitely not an eye for an eye or the punishment 
proportional to the crime. Three, the extra punishment is due to sadistic motives and tyrannical. God is sadistic, punishing Elizabeth above the 60 years of her sins. Why would God want to do that? It's not by justice or merit. It's because God is sadistic and a tyrant. That's why God does that. Four, because all who are sadistic tyrants are evil, the Christian God, therefore, is evil. Just like Hannibal the Cannibal. You know that member from that movie, Silence of the Lamb? An evil guy. Uh, think of all these other people that just inflicted unwarranted cruelty upon people just for sadistic reasons. They're obviously evil people. Well, the God that we worship is evil because of that notion of hell. All right, number five. Also, just as in the 20th century, we had to learn not to allow followers of evil rulers to continue in their support of their evil rulers. For example, we hold all Nazis guilty for the crimes of their leaders. We must stop Christians from believing and practicing their religion because they will promote evil in society. The God we worship is evil. In promoting such a God, we contribute to evil. Therefore, Christianity is a threat to society. What do you think? What's wrong with that argument? Or do you think it's right? <laughs> One thing that comes to my mind, he doesn't believe in God to begin with. <laughs> well, right, he doesn't. Uh, and elsewhere he does talk about why he doesn't believe in God. Uh, but uh, this is mainly to show, because you believe in God, not because David Lewis doesn't, but because you believe in God, you are evil, and hence a threat to society. Well, that's a good question because those notions are sort of normative claims. They're not just local or empirical claims. You know, good is good regardless. Evil is always contrary to good regardless. Um, but their ex his explanation, well, I don't know about David Lewis, come to think of it. I haven't read what he says about that. But with the previous author, Sam Harris, is that, once again, science can discover those things for us. Science discovers to us what he calls ethical realism, the truths that that are, are those inalienable ones that all of us should be committed to. Science can do that. You know, in a sense, what I guess religion did for so many centuries, now science will do for us. Well, first of all, let's look at this. Um, I've got a little bit. I'm going to try to leave in about 10 minutes here, but so I want to not stay too long on this response. But uh, again, this to me, for such a learned man, such an astute, rigorous reasoner as David Lewis is, it, it surprises me what ignorance he shows here about the teachings of hell in Christianity. You know, there are, there are many teachings of hell in Christianity and punishment. There are many. There's not just one. He has picked one and said this is definitive of all religion, all Christianity, in that some people would reason this way, is that Elizabeth's six years of sin merit eternal punishment, there probably are people that argue this way. But I, I, I could spend you know, hours here talking about other well-known theological positions that don't understand punishment in that way, that don't articulate it. In fact, think with me for a second. Is there such a notion in the Apostles' Creed? Nicene Creed? 
No, there is no notion of hell like this in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. It's not central to our faith, that concept of punishment. Though I admit some people have it, it has never been deemed to be central enough to be in the confession of our faith. In fact, the New Testament, I, I, I hope I'm not shocking any of you, I doubt if I am, but it, it has different viewpoints about punishment. It really does. It's not all this being thrown into eternal fire. Some of it's just darkness. They just, they're just gone. That's how sometimes punishment is rendered. And oh, just quickly, one of my favorite theologians, philosophers that has shaped a lot of what I think is a medieval philosopher named Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury. Have you been to Canterbury Cathedral? He's buried in Canterbury Cathedral. As you're walking up to Trinity Chapel, it's right there on the right. Be that as it may, he wrote a brilliant book called Why the God-Man. Very influential theological book. I believe in it. Uh, it's it's well-reasoned and so on. And he does think that, that there is legitimate punishment for sinners. For instance, if I offend Scott, then my offense is relative to his significance, right? Now, if I offend a dog, it's not as serious as if I offend Scott. If I offend the President of the United States, it's a little more serious. If I threaten him, Scott, then you know he, he might put a restraining order or something on me. But if I threaten the President of the United States, I mean, I could be you know put away for that. Why? Because the one offended determines the amount of the offense. Not the offender, but the one offended. So if we offend a holy, a holy, infinite God, then the offense is holy and infinite. But what Anselm argued is that though that may be justice, God seeks reconciliation with the offender more than God seeks justice with the offender. And hence Christ dies on the cross to bear our punishment. At the heart of our Christian faith is not that God's going to condemn Elizabeth forever because of her 60 years of sin, but the heart of our faith is that Christ has borne her punishment. He seems to be totally ignorant of that. I'm sort of dumbfounded that somebody who is so, so reputable, so, so significant and insightful and careful with his reasoning would come up with this. That then leads me uh, to make a couple of things here. Uh, first, uh, I, this is just part of what it means to be a humble person. We have to ask, what can I learn from these criticisms? And we should. It's hard. Like I said, I get tired of taking all these body blows. You know, bam, bam, bam. But i got to ask myself, okay, what can I learn from this? And they, on a whole, every now and then, well, you know, I think issue a real serious challenge for us. And one, you know, ignorance has been fostered in Christianity. We, we, we should edu- educate our children ourselves. We, we just can't appeal back to authority all the time. Ignorance has been fostered. We need to be aware of that. There's no excuse for being ignorant. Secondly, and violence has been justified. It's a real mar, it's a real scar on our Christian history that many of the great Christian leaders did justify violence. And we should not do that. I should not be like those inquisitors. I should not be like the crusaders. I should be more like Francis of Assisi and others. Even Anselm, I mentioned, was against the crusades. So it wasn't uniform that all Christians were all for the crusades. And so my point is, I think we need to learn something from this. But also, here's one of the reasons I'm sharing these things with you. I think there is a growing hostility to Christianity in our culture. We may not feel it all that much here. But it's there. 
And it's especially in the academy, in academia. It's real, real strong. Not just kind of tolerance for differences of opinion, but hostility towards Christianity for these very reasons. It's contrary to the modern sense of freedom and uh, the progress of learning. Christianity is obstructionist, obscurant, and um, promotes these kind of violence. And um, Christianity is considered opposed and a threat to modern freedom and science. You know, from there is no God, we're now to a point that there should be no religion. And I think we need to be aware of that. Um, you know, there's, this is a big, big sort of sweeping generalization. But usually when ideas take place, when, they, when, when ideas get into people's minds, when they're taught for you know, several decades in universities, they then become practice. How people begin to act. Ideas shape practice. And when practice has been going on for several decades, then it becomes policy. Ideas practice policies. I think there's a progression to this. I know this may be alarmist, and I on a whole am not an alarmist. I, I live with ambiguity. I don't mind ambiguity. But I do think there's an issue here. I think that progression is working its way through from idea to practice to policy. And we may be dealing more and more with things saying that you cannot do that as a Christian in our society. Now, here's some recommendations. Um, I think we ought to cultivate this idea of intellectual missionaries. <coughs> Not just missionaries to less developed cultures or missionaries to people who need medical help or educational help, but missionaries to uh, the academy, intellectual missionaries. This is one of the great days of the Christian calendar, of Pentecost. What's the essence of Pentecost? God speaking in multiple languages, the one truth. I think we need to educate our children, to develop scientists, people who teach the humanities, people in the professions, who can speak the Christian truth in the language of which they are trained, like in philosophy, or in business, or in medicine, or in, biz or, or in uh, uh, literature, and so on. We need to cultivate that. Because, I mean, there is, there's this growing idea that this is a threat. We need to have people that, says, that can say it's not a threat. We have learned through this process and be able to meaningfully communicate in that language just like a, what happened at Pentecost, how to do that. Let me recommend this book. Uh, Andy, you might actually be interested in this book. A Secular Age. It's, it's light reading, as you can tell. You can read it over the weekend. Uh, I read the one you got down there at the Okay. Charles Taylor. This is a serious book, and uh, it will have a big influence on Christian intellectuals for years. And he is talking about how to do that very thing. What is going on in our modern culture in which Christian vocabulary can find a meaningful expression? And the second one I encourage here is the encouragement of, of culture makers. This book here, James Donaldson Hunter. Uh, I'm glad Andy has read this. It's called... Um, to change the world. The irony, tragedy, and possibility of Christianity in the late modern world about how to see ourselves as formation of culture, not just defending ourselves, but actually creating virtues and values in light of our Christian tradition. One, one last point. Uh, and again, you're here, I think, for for reason, and, and, and I'm wanting to tap onto that. Our, we have a rich 
often neglected intellectual tradition. Christianity does. Very profound intellectual tradition. From the scriptures to St. Augustine to St. Thomas to Anselm and, and on and on and on. And we need to tap into these people from Newton and others uh, to learn from them and how they express their Christian faith and not, not be neglectful of that because I think we're going to need to. We're going to need to build on our own intellectual tradition to give a defense for our faith. Our time is up, but anyone have a concluding comment or question, observation? Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Let me say a closing prayer. Our gracious Lord, speak upon us as what happened 2,000 years ago there in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Equip us with the right words to say and a courageous heart to explore, to articulate, and to speak thy truth. I pray blessings on each of us, in particular this congregation. Amen.